Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. You know, there could be more ukulele, but you don't like any of the things I do. Well, you still haven't got me the X-Files theme that I want, man. That ain't gonna happen. But on this episode, as often as homebrewers are derided as cheap and pinchers of pennies, there are those who exclaim that brewing beer to save money is like buying an expensive bike to save money on a car. But we're here to tell you as your holidays approach and your beer needs increase, they need not be exclusive. So today, how to save money without sacrificing quality. But first, here's a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of none other than Simple Homebrewing by two guys named Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham. Maybe, just maybe, you've heard of them. If you want to streamline your brew day, make great beer, and have a blast in the process, head over to BrewersPublications.com and buy a copy of Simple Homebrewing. The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the AHA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Well, welcome back, and thank you for listening to those messages from our fine, fine sponsors. Remember, if you interact with any of them, make sure that you tell them that you heard them here on The Brew Files so they know their money is mostly well spent. Now, usually we like to say that brewing beer to save money is somewhat akin to buying a boat to save money on fish. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, that certainly can be true. But... There are ways that you can brew more cheaply without sacrificing quality. To me, that's the most important thing, right? There's lots of ways that you can brew really cheaply. You can go out, you can get yourself a bunch of corn sugar and a little bit of malt extract, and you can make the world's grossest beer that will be beer, but it's not going to be very good, and we're not going to recommend that you do that. Here's how we would how we were going to do it. We're going to break this down to a couple different categories. And just for the record, before we get there, uh, 
I know a lot of people out there will say, hey, you know, look, I've got my beer down to 30 cents a pint or 12 cents a pint. I think I even saw one guy who said they, they had their beer down to uh, under a dime a pint, which is amazing. But it's also the sort of uh, uh, measuring contest that guys tend to get involved in that we're not really interested in. If you if you really try and get down to it and you do things like you try and charge out your labor, you're never actually going to make your money back on this. But again, you know, charging your your time and labor on this is kind of like saying that you're charging your time when you're playing golf. So remember we are a hobby. Yeah. You know, I have to admit that I have never ever sat down and calculated what the beer is costing me or how much I spent. Oh, there's, there's a whole community of people out there who I, they are min maxing this all the way to hell and back again. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm well aware of that. I'm just not one of them. My, my feeling is it's a hobby. And as long as I have money I can spend, that's all that matters. And other things that we're not going to calculate other than, you know, your labor is we're also not going to try and amortize, you know, capital expenditures, right? You know, how much money I spend on fermenters divided out by my number of batches or a brand new kettle or hoses or whatnot. I do know people who do this too. We may be nerds, but neither of us are accountants, at least the two on the mic. Yeah, that's right. I'm just going to put it out there. Trust us that if you get out of that, I'm buying every new toy phase, which I know for some of us is really, really hard because new toys are, well, fun. You can catch up on the money that you spend on your gear. Both Denny and I, you know, I would say that our CapEx, our capital expenditure, is absolutely nothing like an actual brewery. You know, we're not spending $10,000 on a tank. No, no, not even close. Remember also the other reason that we talked about the not charging your labor into this is you're entertaining yourself while doing this. So don't worry about this because you're getting entertainment on both the brewing side and on the drinking side. To give you an idea of the reason I also don't think about my labor in this, uh, my wife will actually kick me out to the brewery sometimes because I'm being too grumpy. You're lucky that's all the farther she kicks you. I know, I know. And never, never, ever, ever forget that brewing is always going to be cheaper than a game of golf. Well, you know, and, and it's a hobby and you have to somehow give yourself uh some credit back for the fact that uh, that you're enjoying yourself. Yeah, and whatever you do, don't look at any sort of, hey, you know, increased beer expenditures because you're teaching yourself stuff. Don't do that. That's pointless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you want to do that, start a podcast, then, uh, then you can really have a reason to track it. So we're going to break down how to save money on making your own beer in four broad categories. We're going to start by focusing on size and technique. We're going to focus on ingredients. We're going to focus on one of those great uh, mantras that we've all been taught because of recycling, reuse. And then we're also going to then focus on what might be counterintuitive at first until you get into it, is focusing on the expensive beers. What do you think, Denny? Sure, man. Why not? So having said all that, let's get started. Let's uh, talk about some technique and size issues. Now, I remember earlier I talked about min-maxing. Uh, if you're trying to min-max your effort and your expenditure and labor and all that sort of fun stuff, this probably won't work for you. But if you're min-maxing this sort of stuff, you might want to go talk to a doctor. You may have some issues. <laughs> yeah, again, you know, it, it's a hobby. Uh, if you can afford it, then just don't think about it beyond that. I mean, that's easy for me to say because uh, – I may be in a financial position that other people aren't in, but uh, try not to think about it as much as possible. I think you and I both advocate uh, around the idea that arguably the cheapest and simplest way to make beer and minimize your upfront expenditures is a good old fashioned, well, I say old fashioned, but now it's only a couple of years old, the technique, 
a three gallon brew in a bag type setup. Yeah, I would say that that's definitely true. Uh, brew in a bag, uh, really minimizes your equipment. And if you're brewing three gallon batches, it's going to minimize your ingredient, uh, expenditures, at, at least for that batch. If you end up brewing more often, then I don't know about that. Yeah. Well, to the point, if you've got a decently powered kitchen stove and you have a decently stocked kitchen, you know, you have almost all the tools that you need to do brew in a bag. Uh, the only thing that you really need to do is get a bag uh, because you need a five gallon stock pot and you need a stove that has enough strength to be able to boil it. Uh, or, you know, if you're like Denny and I and you like to brew someplace other than your kitchen, you know, you can, they have these nice induction burners now that actually do the trick as well. You should already have most of this stuff. Um, if you don't, or if you're like me and you want to make sure that you have dedicated brewing equipment, a cheap five gallon stainless steel kettle is not that expensive. You know, I think like 20 bucks. Yeah, that's, I think, about what I paid for my first one. Yeah. And so the nice thing about brewing a bag doing this is that grain, as a rule, is cheaper than buying extract. Brewing a bag is also, to my mind, it's just a fundamentally easier idea of how to start with brewing. So even though we, we still tend to push people towards extract to, you know, learn how to handle your fermentations and whatnot, if you're looking to do a relatively inexpensive beer, a three-gallon brewing a bag set up on your stove is arguably the best way to go. Yeah. Um, now, I also like it for a couple of reasons. Three gallons to me is kind of a sweet spot. When we both started brewing, five gallons was the size of the brewing, and five gallons shall always be the size of the brewing. And to brew any less was to be weird. And you shall not brew you know, a different number than five unless you're brewing greater than five. I'm sorry, Monty Pythoners. <laughs> These days, you know, people have one gallon kits out there. I think one gallon's too small because one gallon's like that's an evening's drinking. Well, you know, if if you are limited on space or equipment or something like that, one gallon is great. But I think that uh, <clears throat> by the time you do one gallon batches, very often you're going to find that uh, the amount of work for the payoff you get is kind of questionable. So three gallons to me is kind of a sweet spot because it's small enough that you get all the advantages of brewing smaller. It works better on your kitchen stove than five gallons does, I think. And then you still also have more beer than you do when you're doing one gallon. And here's the other reason why I also like it is that if you want to brew more different types of beer, brewing these smaller batches is actually better. It gets you a chance to brew more often. And be able to play around with more recipes and explore more more ideas. Yeah, and and to try new techniques and uh, you know experiment. If you screw something up, it's only three gallons, and uh, it makes it easy to try and uh, brew another batch and correct whatever it was you screwed up. And also, ironically, in some ways, brewing more often can actually lead to beer savings, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And you know, like we said, it's the perfect kitchen size and takes advantage of almost anything. And I also think. And I'm sure, Denny, you agree with me on this one. I think three gallons is about the sweet spot for me in terms of brewing a bag sizing. Yeah. Because I think once you get beyond that, it starts to get a little unwieldy. Yeah. At least for my take. Right, man. Uh, that's when you start putting hoists in your garage and stuff like that that uh, can get kind of silly. Yeah. Some of us have bum shoulders. Other ways that you can you can save, you've got to look at other parts of the process, right? So we talk up front you know, about you know, saving on the equipment here. But one of the biggest expenditures in brewing is water usage. So if you're like me and you live here in Southern California, water usage also has, you know, other concerns like, you know, just like in Australia, there's sort of the ethical and moral implications of using a large amount of water for something that, you know, is 
really a hobby. Um, and so there are some other things you can do. We're going to have a whole episode on this coming up, uh, but there is no chill. Uh, no chill brewing out there. If you are trying to save on water usage, for instance, is absolutely perfect. You can do no chill and get away from, you know, all that wastewater that you're generating. And here's the other little dirty secret. No chill brewing also allows you to turn a batch of beer around with less active time because you can just stamp out that whole period of time that you're sitting there messing with your chillers, getting everything cleaned, getting the, the beer chilled, getting it transferred, and then getting everything else cleaned up afterwards. No chill, it's dump, go, come back the next morning and pitch your yeast. Not only do you get to reduce the amount of water that you're using, but you also get to reduce the amount of active time that you actually have involved in the batch of beer making process. So you're not only saving money, you're saving time too. Exactly. And so if we were talking about labor rates, there's a savings. <laughs> yeah, but we're not. So I guess you can just discount that. I'm in kind of an enviable position because I don't pay for my water. Uh, so it's that's just one of those things that I have never even considered. Well, and you also have water that is remarkably cold so that even, you know, even for you, chilling is almost a no time operation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I can, I can chill fast. Uh, my water is extremely good quality, so I don't have to worry about buying water to use. But again, not everybody is in uh, the same situation I am. So if you are paying for your water, then doing no chill will save you some money. Uh, of course, you can, uh, you can always save and reuse the water that comes out. And we'll talk about that in a while too. Yeah, we're getting there. And then also, if you're uh, another one I would like to do just because, and I actually ran into this, you'll hear in a future episode, a discussion about a collaboration beer done at Eagle Rock Brewing Company. And we got down to the end of it where our our last runnings before we decided to cut everything off and go in for just for boil were 12 and a half Play-Doh, right? And 12, 12 and a half Play-Doh is a nice, decent sized beer. So one of the other uh, techniques that you can use to also, you know, sort of maximize your your usefulness out of your mash and everything else that you're doing is to consider doing party guile or to do a multiple runnings type of setup on a beer. And we've talked party guile in the past, and uh, that was uh, episode 41, Party in My Pots, a title I love. <laughs> All you're doing with a party guile is essentially taking different runnings and putting them off into different boil kettles. And so, yeah, in the UK where that practice is still used in some spots, but it's mostly a moribund practice these days, you would have three different beers going out into the kettles and different beers from a brewery might be different blends of different kettles brought back together. You know, in this particular case, what you can do is literally take your first runnings and treat that as a no sparge beer when you're making like your barley wine, say, and then rinse and sparge those grains and you'd be surprised at how much sugar you'll still get out of them. And you can make actually low gravity pale ale or bitter or a mild or something else out of that. Depending upon how stupidly excessive your first beer is you can even actually make a beer that is more like an ipa uh, my falcon's claws recipe that, that we've talked about in the past the second runnings on that still come out at like 1065 yeah um my my old stoner barley wine when i used to make that uh we, i'd get together with some friends and we would get uh, oh probably 11 gallons of a 1.100 plus barley wine and then maybe like 15 gallons of a 1050 to 1060 uh, pale ale, or oftentimes we would uh, cap the mash with a little dark grain and make a brown ale out of it, something like that. But yeah, man, it's a it's a great way to uh, to maximize your investment in grain. 
Yeah, so that's a technique I don't think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people really think about when they're doing this. But a lot of times when you're doing these big beers, you're you're leaving pennies behind in the kettle or in the mash run, really. You can use that sugar, spend a little bit more time on your brew day, and end up with multiple batches of beer out of it. So it's a good technique to think about, particularly if you're trying to you know, maximize utility. Denny, any other thoughts on technique or size or anything else that we should mention to the fine folks? Size matters. It does in, in this particular <laughs> in, case. In, in an inverse uh, way, huh? Obviously, there are things here that we have not thought of. This is just a high-level skim over. So if you have ideas that we've missed in terms of techniques, let us know. We'll read them out on the air because we want to learn, too, from you. All right. So we talked technique. Now, what about our ingredients? Is there a way to save money on the ingredients? And I'm just going to put it out there that the first rule, bulk, is almost always your friend. Maybe not with yeast, but definitely with hops and malt. It can be with yeast, but obviously you have to be real careful uh, if you're going to buy dry yeast, for instance, and repackage it. Uh, I have uh, been in on group buys where we bought a 500-gram brick of yeast and uh, repackaged it and vacuum-sealed it into smaller uh, packages. And it worked great, but it is a bit stressful trying to make sure that you keep everything sanitary as you do that. I would always be concerned. So that's part of the reason why we're not going to talk about how to do that with yeast. Yeah, I would always be concerned too. And that's why uh, I've not done it more than once or twice. And uh, I really question whether the hassle is worth the money saving. Besides, we're going to, we're going to cover some uh, better things that you can do with yeast just a little bit down the line. I will say, you, I think you'd actually be surprised if you can afford both the upfront cost and also the storage cost to buy in bulk. I think that you can find that even with some of the more expensive boutique type malts, say like Mechagrade, our sponsor over on the main show, or Epiphany malt that you can buy from our sponsor here, Atlantic Blue Supply, they can actually be cheaper upfront buying in bulk than just going and buying your your grains, you know, as you need them piecemeal. And even the even the you know regular domestic stuff. Really, really consider this because it may actually be a way to really improve the quality of your beer while also just, you know, uh, you know, giving you a little bit cheaper product. My rule is always find a good source for your bags. So obviously, if a homebrew supply store is going to charge you a large amount of shipping, that's going to raise the price of your malt. So if you can find it local, even better. And then you got to get it stored correctly. Uh, Denny, how do you store your malt? I uh, I buy big Rubbermaid storage tubs and just leave the malt in there in its original bag, and it works fantastically. Uh, I I don't have a, a basement or actually even any place to store my malt, so I do it at a friend's house who does have a basement. It stays cool uh, in the bag, in the tub. It stays dry. Uh, I recently popped open a five-year-old bag of best Munich malt, and it was like in perfect condition. And for me, I have to take some extra measures because I do live in uh, serious rat country. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's why I don't store mine outside and I go from my friend's basement. Um, Yeah, you'd you'd think that they'd be fearful of my area, but no, I I have city rats. They're they're annoying. Uh, And what I'll actually do is I take the Gamma Company. They make what they call Gamma Lids. And if you've ever seen a Vittle Vault, you know, the kind of screw-on lid that they have, they make those, but they make them designed to fit on five-gallon painter's buckets. 
right? So the kind of bucket that you can get from a food grade supply or from Home Depot or something like that. And I use admittedly the non-food grade uh, buckets that you get from Home Depot. One of those buckets will hold a half a bag of grain. And then I just cinch down that lid. And yeah, I've used malt that's, you know, four or five, six years old, and it's been fine. Now, the one thing I do also do because my rats have gotten smarter and figured out there's a way that they can get through the gamma lids easily is I now actually take cheap Chinese metal pizza pans. And as I stack the buckets together, whatever buckets on top also gets an additional metal lid on it. And so far, the little rats haven't figured out how to get through there. So far. Huh? So far. Oh, hey, look, rats have been around us for a long time. But that's what I do. And my malt has actually stayed in pretty pretty fine tip-top shape uh, this entire time. So it's a real good thing. Uh, in order to buy your malt, try and work through your local shop first. Uh, many, many local shops will have a loyalty program or some sort of bulk grain buy. Uh, my club, the Maltos Falcons, every year does a deal with our shop where you know we allow members to get essentially 15 pounds of grain for free. You know, as long as you're a dues paying member, as long as they bring the beer back to the club for use at, like, say, a party or a function or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the homebrew shop I go to uh, actually gives a discount to club members. So, you know, there's another reason to join a club, too. If your local homebrew shop or, you know, either doesn't have that sort of program or they're not willing to work with you on that sort of program, one, wow. But you do have a local brewery, then I would suggest you can go talk to them. And, you know, particularly if you're good friends with them and they may actually be able to cut you a deal on some malt. Look, they're not paying the same prices that we're paying in a homebrew store for, for malt. No, but on the other hand, they may not be able to sell you malt and you need to be aware of it from their point of view. Uh, I'm, I'm told that, uh, sometimes there are tax issues where the brewery has to account for the amount of grain it uses uh, versus the amount of beer that it produces. And, you know, so you can't just have grain disappear. And the other thing that may even be more important is distribution agreements. Uh, if your distributor is selling grain both to homebrew stores and to breweries, they could get pretty upset if that brewery starts undercutting the homebrew store account and selling you grain. So think about it. Keep in mind other people's point of view, and maybe sometimes you saving money is not going to be worth getting somebody in trouble when they try and do you a favor. Absolutely. Yeah, and I've run into that one before where, oh, yep, sorry, I can't sell it to you because the local homebrew supply store will, will be impacted. You can always ask, but if somebody comes through and says no, you got it. You understand it. But I would say the the best way to do it is if you can get a group of people together at your homebrew supply store and order, you know, say five, ten sacks and split it up amongst everybody. Or a pallet. Or more. Yeah. yeah or a pallet. And like we said, it, if you're storing it right, you want to keep it in relatively low humidity. You want to keep it uh, relatively consistent in temperature. A whole malt last for years as uh, as we've both seen in our experience and remember we've done an experiment in the past that showed that even milled malt will hold a pretty good brewing quality for a good long time if stored correctly yeah somebody some when we uh were looking at that somebody mentioned that they had contacted Brees, and Brees says that their milled malt is going to be good for two years uh in unopened bags so go for it one caveat about this Buying in bulk, unless you're, say, your homebrew supply store will allow you to mill grain that you've bought in bulk there. Some will, some won't. Uh, they're usually more amenable if you bought the grain through them. Um, 
It does require you that you have either a mill of your own or access to a mill. But in the long run, getting your ingredient costs on your grain down to say 30 cents a pound, which is not uncommon to be able to do here when you're buying malt in bulk, is a pretty damn good savings. Another thing you can do too is to go in on a mill with somebody else. Uh, I did that uh, <laughs> close to 20 years ago when I bought my mill. Uh, a friend and I who was a brewer split the cost and uh, it works out really well. And now let's talk about everybody's favorite ingredient here in America, hops. And as you know, we're we're good friends with a lot of uh, different hop farmers and, and the, our good buddies over at Yakima Chief Hops. And Look, it's no no surprise. Hops are available in bulk. You know, you can you can order pounds of hops from various companies out there. Uh, various homebrew shops will do pounds. Uh, there are even some uh, direct hop suppliers that will do pounds of hops to you, and they're great. But you got to follow a couple of rules. They're best if they're kept frozen. They're also best if you keep them together in bulk, uh, and you handle them as least as possible. Remember, the enemy of hops is going to be. Uh, temperature and oxygen exposure. Do as much as you can to avoid those two things. I have a vacuum sealer at home, which makes this nice because then I can, you know, rebag my hops every time I use them. If you don't have a vacuum sealer, you know, consider doing water displacement uh, for air, you know, kind of like what you do in a sous vide uh, setup. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go look up sous vide, you'll figure it out. If you really want to maximize your savings, focus on hops that you're going to use again and again. So, like for me, I have almost all my recipes are using Magnum and Warrior. Denny, what do you use? Uh, you know, I go through, uh, oh, a lot of the Pacific Northwest hops like Cascade and Chinook. Uh, I go through a lot of Columbus and Mount Hood making rye IPA. So those are the ones that I kind of tend to buy in bulk and seal up uh, with my vacuum sealer. And let me mention that uh, buying a vacuum sealer, can be amortized very easily if you start using it in the kitchen also. Uh, I actually do more sealing of food than I do of hops. So it's kind of like uh, being able to seal up hops is kind of a nice plus that I get while I'm using my vacuum sealer to seal up and freeze everything from tortillas to cheese. And yeah, I just, I just broke some vacuum sealed fish out of the freezer for after, I don't know, like two years. Yeah, just right. Just cooked that up and it was great. But yeah, find the hops that you love and buy those in bulk. There's a reason why most breweries have a signature hop profile. <laughs> you know, it's much better to go and buy these things in bulk if you're actually going to use them. Don't go and buy like a pound of the weird new hop just because you don't know whether or not you're going to like it. Another big savings here about hops is to get smarter about your hop usage. In addition to buying in bulk, Cut back on your dry hopping. Uh, you know, use use a cutback on your rates to discover the point actually where it makes a difference. Remember, we've been talking all this stuff from Shellhammer recently, and how there's a point of diminishing returns and a point where actually things go wrong in terms of the characters that we want out of these hops. But most homebrewers and even most craft brewers still tend to suffer from enthusiasm. <laughs> That's a very kind way to put it. Yes, exactly. So learn to be less enthusiastic and be more restrained. You'll find that you get not only a better expression of your hop characters, but you also save money in the long run in terms of your usage. Speaking of usage, also do, I recommend doing like what I do, which is focus on using high alpha bittering hops. So again, Warrior Magnum for my case, because they're more efficient from both a usage and a waste point of view. You lose less wort, you use less hops. And, and, Remember, there is a reason why until recently the hop industry was obsessed with 
maximizing the yield of a high alpha over everything else that they were doing. Um, nowadays, they they have more focus on aroma and flavor characteristics. But back in the old days, it was all how many IBUs can we potentially squeeze out of every acre? Yeah. And the other thing I would say, too, especially in terms of waste, is to uh, maybe explore cryo hops or other things like them, maybe hop extracts. Cryo hops, for instance, are so potent that you get a lot more out of fewer hops in your in your beer so it doesn't soak up as much beer uh if you can source hop extracts that'll give you even more yield out of your kettle and so that's what we talk about with hops bulk use them wisely use less yeast denny what about yeast how, how do you save money on yeast well, you know, one way, obviously, is to use dry yeast, because dry yeast doesn't need a starter. So uh, you're saving money on the DME that you would normally use to, to make the starter. You're saving time and energy from not having to uh, to boil it all up. So that's, you know, that's one really, really good thing to look at. Absolutely. And we'll get into more yeast uh, saving techniques here in a minute. The other thing to remember is these days, it used to be you kind of wanted to avoid dry yeast because of either contamination issues or just a lack of variety issue. And these days in the dry yeast world, uh, contamination is basically gone and variety has greatly increased. So, you know, go out there and explore your dry yeast. They're good for you. Yeah, there's some real good options in dry yeast these days. Now, some other bits about how to save money, uh, just real quick, on uh, ingredients is we tend to buy expensive ingredients that we don't need. So the classic one to me is sugar. I can't tell you the number of times I've seen people go and buy, you know, rock candy sugar from Belgium because they think that's what they need for making a Belgian beer. Uh, it's pointless, and usually for all but the uh, uh, the strongest beers, so are the clear invert syrups. So don't buy a rock candy sugar. Don't buy a clear invert syrup. Just Use good old table sugar. As long as you've got healthy enough yeast, they'll be able to do the inverting that they need and get access to those sugars. Yeah, there's there's really no problem with it. Uh, you know, I know that uh, sugar in beer has gotten a bad rap, but there are times when it is absolutely necessary. And uh, for a lot of those times, you don't need to go buy an expensive sugar. On the other hand, there are times when you need something like a candy syrup or something, and that is definitely worth the expense of buying it. Uh, a lot of people try to make it. I'm not convinced that you can make one as flavorful as what you can buy. Um, just just go get it. And if you're trying to replicate any of the brewer's invert syrups, they're used all over the place in the U.K., you may have to make those yourself because those aren't available here commercially. Um, there are a couple of recipes online, both in experimental homebrewing and uh, go look up Chris England's method using molasses to sort of approximate it. But you don't have to go bite the expensive stuff for that. Um, spices. You can almost always find spices better, cheaper in bulk from spaces that actually specialize in spices than from your homebrew shop. Uh, you don't know how how long those spices have been sitting there. And man, don't go buy an expensive spice that is going to be worthless to you. So go find a better ingredient at cheaper bulk rates. Uh, this is one of the few times I'll tell people, run away from your local homebrew shop. You don't know how long those things have been sitting there. Both Danny and I live on the West Coast, and there's a, been a long history of, you know, save the earth, recycle, reduce, and reuse. Um, and so in this particular case with brewing, it is very, very possible for you to engage in Clever reuse that is not only good for the planet, but also good for your checkbook. And so we're going to we're gonna start actually here with water, because I think water is the big one. 
And again, remember, I, I have to I have to be water conscious here in Southern California. Now, remember that we said that brewing more often can actually save money back then? It's true because if you brew more often, you, know, you can actually save, you know, kind of start stacking your brew days, you know, so you got like a back-to-back brew day, for instance. And if you do that, you can actually take your leftover chilling water, save it, and use it to make your strike water for your next brew day. Actually, if you even want to be even crazier and play like you're one of the big guys, you can actually take your chilling water, immediately put it into your HLT, and use that to start the next batch if you're doing a back-to-back batch. If you go to a, a big professional brewery like an Anheuser-Busch plant, you'll see that not only do they take the chilling water and you know use that to start the next batch, but be, before they even get there, they actually take the, the water out of the heat exchanger and then pass it through pipes that run up the steam exhaust stack off the boil uh, boil kettle, and then drop that back down in the HLT to gain as much heat efficiency as they possibly can. I'm not exactly saying that we're going to do that here. <laughs> not anything even close to it. Yeah. Other things you can do if you have a top-loaded clothes washer, you can run the hose from your chiller over to your washing machine and actually you know prep a batch of clothes. Right, pre-fill that machine. It takes a lot of water. Yep. And then a lot of people out there will also save the water off to the side, use some of it for cleaning, or they'll save it off the side, let it cool down, and use it around the garden. Yeah, I, I use it for cleaning, man. I just run the output of my hydra into a bucket, and uh, when I'm all done and ready to clean up, I have some warm water there ready to go, uh, which in the winter around here is especially nice. Always. All right, hops. As everybody discovered during the hop crisis, yes, you can reuse dry hops and make them into boil hops, but don't. <laughs> you know, I, I never tried it, and I suspect that it might work okay, but, you know, I don't know if you would know exactly what you're going to be getting out of them in terms of alpha and... Yeah, the rule of thumb is 30% less. Well, that may be the rule of thumb, but then what a mess. Exactly. So, don't. Now, yeast, on the other hand, by all means, reuse yeast. I think yeast is the one place where we do have problems saving as homebrewers because it's hard for us outside of, say, hey, becoming a microbiologist and learning how to do all your own growing and culturing and all that. You know, it's generally a lot better plan for us to go and buy yeast as we need it. But again, here's another place where brewing more frequently can save you money because the more frequently you brew, the more often you can reuse a yeast cake. Right. So we've talked about this before, like, you know, go and make a session beer to grow up a yeast cake that you can then use to, you know, power your big monster barley wine, Russian imperial stout thing. So what I like to tell people to do is plan a series of beers that use the same strain. And again, remember anything about yeast when we're talking about this, you have to be rock solid point on about your sanitation. Right. Which is why I always tell people. Don't bother rinsing the yeast, which yeah. a lot of people end up calling washing. It, it really isn't. It's just rinsing it. But there's no benefit to it. It's a fair hassle. And it's one more place where there can be a crack in your sanitation and you end up scurrying everything out. And I'll just real quick here run through my method for reusing yeast. Um, I take the slurry from the end of a batch. I don't rack quite all the beer off of it. I leave a little bit behind. I pour that into two to four sanitized uh, plastic containers with snap-on lids. Uh, the number is dependent on how much slurry I have in there. 
if I'm going to be brewing again within the next few weeks, I can just take one of those containers, pour off the beer on top, and pitch it directly into the next batch. If it's going to be a lot longer than that, then I can just take a little bit of that yeast out of there and rebuild a starter. Now, I mentioned that I use plastic containers with snap-on lids. These are like uh, half-gallon little tubs that uh, my homebrew shop sells for liquid extract. The great thing about that is you have to remember that even in the refrigerator, that yeast is going to keep slowly fermenting away. And with a plastic tub with a snap-on lid, the lid will just bulge, or at worst case, it may pop up a little bit. and to release pressure, so you don't need to worry about it. A lot of people use mason jars to do this. Uh, if you do, do not screw the lids on tightly unless you really enjoy picking shards of glass out of the walls of your refrigerator. Don't ask me how I know. <laughs> yeah, and, and don't ask Danny how come he uh, cut his finger on a shard of glass in my brewery from an exploding jar. <laughs> That's right. I'd forgotten yeah. about that. Plant a series of beers, reuse reuse your yeast, be careful about your sanitation. And I mean, look, a lot of commercial brewers will tell you that they don't really feel like a yeast strain like, say, 1056 or Cal Ale really hits its stride in terms of fermentation potential and maximum flavor production until about generation seven on repitches. Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know about seven, but I find that two to three is, is very common. You know, I, I see that that more often than not, uh, the yeast that's been used once or twice before is going to react better than the first pitch. Now, other way to also save some money on at least the yeast, if not on your beer expenses is go ask your local, uh, for a yeast pitch. Now, I've talked about this in the past as well. There are lots of rules to follow when you ask your local for whether or not they're dumping yeast and how you do it safely and correctly. You know, show up to the brewery with a sanitized growler, uh, you know, say that you're there and then wait because you're item number 51 on a list of 50 things that have to get done that day. And, you know, be polite and buy a pint of beer. Yeah. Uh, call ahead. Make sure that uh, there's going to be somebody there who can actually get it for you. Uh, every single brewery that we have around here will be happy to give you yeast. And it's just kind of a, a, a nice courtesy to call ahead and say, hey, can I come and get some yeast now? What's happening? Yeah. Remember, you are the least important thing happening that day. They're doing you a favor, so act like it. Uh, the other thing you can do is take along a gallon Ziploc bag, which is going to be sanitary inside if you don't open it first, and uh, and put the yeast in there, too. And I'll do this all the time when I'm doing, uh, say, a big beer for the club. You Because know, when our club does a beer, we're brewing 40 to 50 gallons. So need a lot of yeast for that. So it's a lot easier to go get it from one of our friends and neighbors. Um Now, the other thing that people are out there advocating is also saving your starters. So you'll see people talk about overgrowing their starters. So um, make a gallon starter for when I only need a half gallon starter and then saving a portion of that, or actually it's usually more like three quarters of a gallon, use the half gallon and use that quarter gallon to start growing up another starter. Again, this requires that you have things going back to back. Um, I've only done this a, a little bit. I played around with it a couple of times just to understand the technique. My worry is always going to be sanitation. Because to me, this is always a place where you're going to run into sanitation issues. So you've got to be spot on. You really cannot be lackadaisical about this. Otherwise, something's going to get into your other yeast starter and it's going to make you very sad. That's right. Well, it's, it's very much the same for even saving the slurry from a batch, too. So just remember that anytime you're going to be reusing yeast, you have to be really, really intense about your sanitation. 
And speaking of sanitation, it is actually possible for you to hold on to sanitizer. Uh, if you do proper uh, mix, mixing and storage, sanitizer solutions can hang around for more than just your single use. Uh, you know, like StarSan and SaniClean both need to maintain a pH of below three. Uh, and you can really do that easily by starting with RO and distilled water. And then I store mine in kegs. Uh, Iota 4 is very much the same way. It can hang around for a good long while. In fact, if you go into most breweries, you'll probably see that they have an Iota 4 bucket hanging out somewhere in the corner. And again, with that, you want to make sure that you're watching that still colored, you know, still has that Iota 4 color to it. Um, and if you're really practicing good, smart, you know, chemical management, you also have test strips that will tell you whether or not the Iota 4 <laughs> concentration is high enough. I wouldn't trust the color as much as I'd trust the test strips. Uh, and a little point here about star sand also. People say if it's cloudy, then it's no good. That is definitely not the case. Uh, mine goes cloudy pretty much as soon as I mix it up. But the pH is under 3, so that's all that really matters uh, for the reuse of that. Uh, in terms of reusing iota 4, keep in mind that proteins will degrade it. So be sure that if you're going to reuse it, that the stuff you've used it on is absolutely clean first. Because if you, uh, you know, like have a, a ring of crud uh, in your fermenter and you put iota 4 in there and try to reuse that iota 4, uh, it will not work as well as it should. Yeah. Remember, you can't sanitize a dirty surface. That's right. It doesn't help your sanitizer. That's right. And I also, like I said, I like to store both of those in kegs and also under CO2 just to keep oxygen away. And also it inhibits any sort of mold growth. So remember that too. Last subject, expensive beers. And this was the one that we said that uh, earlier, like, uh, hey, yeah, you can save money by going big on your beers. It seems a little counterintuitive because you are spending more money up front, but I'm going to break this down for you. This is going to be the one time we're going to talk about math. We are now currently in a world where a four pack of IPAs, at least here in Los Angeles, can cost you over $20 a four pack. That's five or more dollars for a pint can that you're taking home with you. This is kind of insane, but also what do you expect when you're adding all those hops to a patch of beer? I, I'm sure Denny just went, what, huh? How much? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of did actually. But even before the days of like all the haze craze and people, you know, with fancy labels on their cans, uh, I encouraged people if they were really trying to think about where they could save money in brewing to focus on the bigger beers. And it's because these are the these are kind of beers that you could get the best bang for your buck, and they don't actually have to be all that expensive to make. And so, a great example is I, I did some I pulled some numbers. Buying a case of something like, say, Chimay Blue. And for me, that runs somewhere between uh, $14 to $17 for a $750. A five-gallon batch is roughly 25 bottles of that size. So just running the math straight, the equivalent in Chimay would cost me $350 to $425 before taxes. That is a whole hell of a lot of Chimay cheese for a nice goblet of Belgian ale. Yeah, you know, and uh, I kind of did the same calculation uh, with the the Rochefort homage. Remember, I'm not, I don't use the word clone. Uh, but I, you know, there's a, a recipe that you can make a really, really good beer in the style of Rochefort. And when I started making that, I figured out that uh, I was making about 500 retail dollars worth of beer for less than 50 bucks. And uh, that's, that's very, very attractive. Yeah, so we're going to walk some more math here. Cause I mean, here's what my basic recipe for a Chimay ish beer would be like for a five gallon batch, uh, 13 pounds of Pilsner, a half pound of special B 
two pounds of candy D180. Remember we said use candy syrups where you need it. This is a case where I say that you need it. One pound of regular sugar. So it's basically 80% of a base malt and 20% of sugar. And the special bees just in there is like a little extra kick of something interesting. And then for hops, three quarters of an ounce of magnum for 60 minutes. And then use a Y yeast uh, Trappist High Gravity is the one I like to use, or whatever your favorite equivalent is. Uh, I'm sorry. I just have to say this, man. Uh, the, the High Gravity is the 3787, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll get a damn good beer, but it won't be a Chimay kind of thing. Uh, I would, I mean, uh, there's a Y yeast 1214 that actually is the Chimay yeast. I'm not a huge fan of that. Because I know, neither it, am I. That's why I use the 3787. Yeah. Well, and if I want to make something like Chimay, I will actually buy a bottle of Chimay, drink it, and culture up the yeast. And that's kind of like a, a money-saving thing, too, because I get both the beer and the yeast. That's true. And, yeah, and again, as long as you got your sanitation on point, it's a way that you can totally do it. That's right. So now... Running through the running the numbers for that race, recipe through uh, Atlantic Brew Supplies website, you know, and so looking at their prices and also taking advantage of the fact they include flat rate shipping. What you're looking at is about thirty three dollars for the grains and the candy syrup, a buck seventy five uh, for the hops, seven dollars for the yeast, and eight dollars for shipping. You know, across the country over to me, so that's forty nine dollars and seventy five cents, and that's about. 15% the price for the equivalent size of that case of Chimay. Right. And that's about what I came out with my, with my Rochefort also. I mean, it's just a, a great way. And, and you make a great point about by focusing on big, expensive beers is where you're going to get the greatest savings, assuming you drink those beers already. What this means, and this is, this is my favorite sort of math because one of the other pieces is that people say, Oh yeah, but you know, you're going to screw up. You're not going to make the beer as good as Chimay. You're going to blah, blah, blah. Well, yes. Okay. But I'm also considering education as part of the benefits of the hobby. But at that pricing, I can brew almost seven times for the equivalent cost of that one case of Chimay without any sort of weird tricks, any other sort of savings apply to it. So that's enough of a discount in my mind that I can brew this several times, screw up. And still come out ahead while also entertaining myself. Ta-da. Ta-da, indeed. Let's go and actually break down the Haze Craze type case because we know, again, like I said, four packs for 20 plus. The Haze Bombs, we know, aren't cheap because the favorite hops aren't cheap. You know, things like your Galaxies and whatnot. And a great many of the homebrew recipes out there I see use 8 to 16 ounces of hops. And they're using those Mosaics and Galaxies in spades, which adds to the cost. And now... Remember, again, like we said, a great number of these hazies are coming in at $20 for four pints or about $200 before taxes for the equivalent size of five gallons. Um, and again, looking at our costs, and we're going to do worst case scenario here where we're just not buying beyond our means, so we're not doing any bulk savings, right? My basic recipe for a hazy is 12 pounds of pale malt and two pounds of oat malt. And let's just say that we're going for eight ounces of mosaic spread across everything so that we can just you know do the, the math here easily. And let's really push it. We're going to use uh, a craft malt. So in this case, I chose the Epiphany malt from Atlantic. And, you know, that's a buck 69 a pound for their pale malt. So 20 bucks for a batch plus about 350 for the oat malt. So 23.75, 15 bucks for the eight ounces of mosaic. Remember, this is expensive. This is the only place that we're going in on the bulk side here. So if you were to go and buy bulk from somebody other than, you know, like in bulk bulk, you could get this for cheaper. So 15 bucks for the half pound of mosaic. That brings us up to 38.74. 
And then you add in another $7 for the yeast and the shipping fee. And we're looking at a total batch cost of $53.74. So right around the same cost as we did for that Chimay. That's about 26% of the commercial cost. So again, you could brew just about four times, screw up, and still have a lot of fun learning. So remember here, we're talking expenses, not just big, because again, this hazy is not a super big beer. It's not like the Chimay, but it's expensive because of all the hops. But you can see just how much savings you actually ended up getting. This is a, a perfect reason why we why we say focus on your expensive beers, you know, those hazy IPAs, your big IPAs, your your Belgian beers with all the you know the fancy uh, bottles. Focus on that, and you can actually really turn around your your money that you're spending on your hobby relatively quickly. Any other thoughts, Denny? No, man. I think that that's really really a great point. Yeah, so there you go. Two use cases for focusing on expensive beers. Sure, you got more upfront costs, but if you're already drinking these beers, uh, well, you're saving money. Ta-da. <laughs> Ta-da, indeed. So, Denny, before we uh, leave this subject of brewing cheaply without sacrificing quality, any other thoughts? Man, I think that we've uh, covered about everything I can think of and more. So uh, I would say people just need to try it and see how it works for them. Well, that's what we always tell people. How about that? Indeed. Now, let's go on and let's brew. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at the best way to be both cheap and well-beard. What did we miss? We know some of you are more clever, efficient, cheaper, impecunious than us, so you have to let us know. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook and Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, BrewSwag.com, code word experimental, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Chat with Champs. They help kids with cancer to connect with each other, and you have uh, champions they can talk to all the time. Uh, it's just, you know, a, a wonderful way to help out kids in a terrible situation. So please throw us a couple bucks and we'll pass it along to them. There you go. So until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com.